Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark chapter 1. I did an introduction last week, not very well, but I did an introduction on Mark, and we're going to deal with these first eight verses tonight. So we'll begin reading in Mark 1, verse 1, and it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locust and wild honey, and preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. And I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week, just briefly, but Mark introduces his gospel this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Greek word for gospel, euangelion, it means good news. And it was in use way before these gospels were written. And it was usually used to announce the reign of a new emperor. So listen, they found an inscription in Rome ten years before Jesus was born about Augustus, the Roman king. And they considered him to be their savior. And they said he would cause wars to cease, he would create order everywhere, and he would prosper the people. So just to show you how that word was used and why Mark is using it here, it's the first of the gospels that was written. Nobody knew what a gospel was. And we take it for granted, the four gospels. Everybody knows what they're talking about. Back then, that was a new thing. But listen, at the end of this inscription for Caesar, it read this. The birthday, the day he was birthed, they called him God, of God Augusta. It's just, it's just an emperor, a man. Is the beginning for the world of the euangelion, of the gospel that has come to men through him. So they considered this UN, this good news. When one of their Caesars was born, that was good news for the world because Rome ruled the world. That's literally what they thought. And so Mark is telling us here, I have a gospel. I have a euangelion, and it's good news that's different than any other that you've ever heard of. No emperor compares to what I'm about ready to tell you. And it's the beginning of the good news of the arrival of a new king. You get all excited about these new Caesars, new emperors, but this is going to be like one that has never been seen. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So listen, Jesus was his name. That was his name. Yahashua in Hebrew or Joshua, and it means Yahweh is salvation. That was his name. Because listen, a lot of people don't know this. Christ was not his last name. It's not like John Solinger and then you have Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. That was a title that was given him. It means Messiah or anointed one. And listen, he's announcing a new king. He's saying it's Jesus, Yahshua, Yeshua. And he is a royal person coming. God's anointed king. The expected Messiah of a kingly lineage. And so he is announcing the good news of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And he's saying his lineage is like none other. It's not like those that have some earthly king for their father. Uh, they come from corrupt fathers and they come from sinners and they are sinners who make mistakes in their personal lives and in the way they rule. But he's saying this king is the son of God. That is his lineage. He is of the nature of God. And in saying that, he is co-eternal with God and co-equal with God. They knew what Son of God meant back then. That's why they wanted to stone Jesus when he said he was the Son of God. These people knew what was being said. And that is no small thing. And Mark's saying, hey, this king here is not like these other kings that you've known and the world has known. He is perfect in character, perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in justice. There is no flaw in him. And this is God has come to earth to rule over us. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to this. This would be familiar in John 1.49. Nathaniel, all Jesus did was read his mail one time. And you know what he was ready to say? Because this is what he said. Nathaniel said unto him, he said this to Jesus, Teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's John 1.49. And that's who he was. A king like no other king, the Son of God. And my title of my message tonight is, The King is Coming. Are you ready? So there was a song that the Gaithers sang, the Gaither vocal band back in the 1970s that went by the title, The King is Coming. And the first verse went like this. The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the street. All the builder's tools are silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives cease their labor. In the courtroom, no debate. Work on earth has been suspended as the king comes through the gate. They'd sing another verse, and then they'd break in, out into, the king is coming. <laughs> but that is how, in the ancient days, when a king came to visit, listen, everything stopped. If he came to your town and village, everything stopped, and nothing else mattered. All work on earth was suspended. It even happens that way if we get a president coming into Louisville. There's a lot of people, work is done, and they're going to go see the king come, the president come, right? The king is coming. Everybody stopped what they were doing back then, and now it's just been that way at all times. The king, to get a glimpse of the king, the trumpet would sound, and the herald would announce his arrival. He's coming. There'd be somebody coming ahead to announce him. No king just showed up and had to announce his own arrival. Always had somebody coming ahead to announce his arrival. Even today, what did they do for our president? Somebody will come out and say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. And then they'll play that song they play, Hail to the Chief. It's the way it's done with dignitaries. And it's the same here. So the Roman Christians and even the non-Christians in Rome, which is who Mark was probably writing to, they would have known that no king came unannounced. There always, like I said, there always was a forerunner, always was a messenger to announce to get his path ready, to make sure that king had a smooth entrance, and to get the people ready. And so what we have here in seven verses that we're looking at in Mark, it's showing the authenticity and the importance of the herald of Jesus, the anointed king, the one that's going to herald his coming. And so what he does here, he jumps right into it, Mark does, and spends the first two verses showing the Old Testament prediction of the messenger. Look what it says, as it is written in the prophets, behold... He's speaking from the prophets, the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And here's another prophecy, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, verse 2 is a prophecy. If you have a good Bible, it'll tell you it's from Malachi. And Malachi was written around 400 to 450 years before Jesus was born. And that's when this prediction was made, this prophecy. And verse 3 is given for a prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3. And that was 700 years before Jesus was born. And they're both talking about the same messenger. And the reason that that is important is because what does that tell the readers back then and tell us now is this whole thing about Jesus showing up and John the Baptist coming on the scene is no spur-of-the-moment decision. This was a plan that was drawn up and predicted centuries before it ever took place. In other words, he's letting us know here that what we're seeing is an unfolding of God's plan to bring the king. And so we know that the messenger is divinely appointed and he is divinely anointed. Because look what he says in verse 2. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. God sent the messenger. Behold, I send him, is what God is saying through the prophet. And God picked the messenger, who it would be. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. And the message itself is from God himself, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's God's voice and God's message. And what was that message? Prepare the Lord's way and make his path straight. So listen, the messenger is nothing. Didn't John say that? He's nothing. I must decrease so he can increase. He's just a mouthpiece. 
All he's doing, all the herald's job is to do, appointed by God, anointed by God. But he is pointing to the king. And what a message he has, though. He's telling the people, you need to get ready because the king is coming. And he's saying it is not just any king that's coming. It's the Lord. It's God himself is on his way. We're not going to do it, but if you would turn and read Malachi 3.1, which is being quoted here, it doesn't say exactly what it says here in Mark. Mark has interpreted what Malachi said a little bit because Malachi reads this way, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And here we read it says, Thy face. So what we're seeing there is me, that's God speaking. He's saying that messenger is going to prepare my way before me, God. And so who are we seeing God is through this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. People are like, where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? It says it all through the Bible. And this would be a good place to point. That's exactly what it's saying here. But he's preparing the way before God who is Jesus Christ. And the messenger is John the Baptist. Look what it says, verse 4 to 6. And John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins and there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and all were baptized of him in the river Jordan confessing their sins and John was clothed with camel's hair and with the girdle of a skin about his loins and he did eat locust and wild honey so it says that this is significant his ministry took place where it took place in the wilderness now look I would read that before you think of a wilderness. I usually think of a lot of trees and woods and thick forests. That's not what a wilderness is over there. And it's not a desert area with all this sand like Saudi Arabia. It's more like just a rocky, barren tundra, a wasteland. And that is where John is at. And so wilderness, the word is used four times here in chapter 1. And then it's never used again in the whole Gospel of Mark. That's interesting, isn't it? Never used again. And why is that? Because he's trying to establish something here. Something new is coming. God's dealing with his people. And the wilderness in the Bible has been, for God's people, a place of new beginnings. That's where they went when he brought them out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. In Hosea 2, God says in that prophecy, Hosea 2, 14 and 15, he says, I am going to meet you in the wilderness and to bring you back to myself. As there's a purpose, and that's what's going on here with John. He's calling people to prepare themselves, bringing them back to him. Because God had been silent in Israel for over 400 years. There had not been the voice of a prophet. And they were not really doing well spiritually. Ezekiel 20 says this, and God says, I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. He's saying, that is where I'm going to deal with you. That is where I'm going to give you a new beginning. And what else is significant Old Testament-wise as far as Israel in the wilderness? God says, that is the place where I tested you. Deuteronomy 8.2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, and to know what was in thine heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And even more significant than that, he's out in that wilderness because God wants to link John the Baptist up with this prophecy of Isaiah. And if you would turn to it, please, put something there in Mark 1 and turn back to Isaiah 40, which is where this verse 3, this prophecy from verse 3 comes from, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity has been pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then here's what we have quoted in Mark. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley, and Luke quotes this part, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, because or for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. 
What we're getting here is God is speaking, it says, comfortably to his people. He's telling them, hey, your punishment is over. You've received double for your sins, and all of that is behind you. He's saying this messenger is announcing to you that the Lord is going to meet you in the wilderness. That's the place, and that's what's going on here. They would have known this prophecy. The Jews would have known it, and they know that it's a time of blessing where he's going to meet them out here with this messenger. And so, hey, God just says, I want you to come out. I want to make sure you're ready for when I come. That's what this is all about. That's what John's ministry was all about, getting them ready. And that's what I'm saying. How did he fulfill the prophecy to prepare the paths for the Lord? Turn back to Mark 1 and look in verse 4. Here's how he did it. Here's how he got them ready. Verse 4, Mark 1. It says, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So let me ask you something. What was the focus of John's preaching? Was his focus baptism? That wasn't the focus of his preaching, was it? You read Luke's account, he talks very much about repentance, which is what we're going to talk about here. And that's what the focus was. It wasn't baptism, it was repentance. And John was God's messenger, and he had God's message, which was to prepare the people, and that all came in one word. And what was that word? It was repent. And that is the first word of the gospel. The first word of the good news. The first word of the good news in the Bible is not believe. It's not love. The first word is not heaven, and it's not racial reconciliation. All of that's involved in the gospel. I'm not putting any of that down, but that is not the first word. That is not the main thing. The first word is repent. You know, in Matthew's account of John's ministry, John the Baptist, this is the way he introduces John the Baptist in Matthew 3. He says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, here was John's message, Repent ye. First thing he said, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you move from John, and then you move to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the next chapter we just read from Matthew 3, the next chapter is Matthew chapter 4. And when Jesus goes out and he survives that temptation and overcomes the devil in the wilderness and returns and comes back preaching, here is what it says. When Jesus returned from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is how our Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel. First word is repent. And when he sent out the twelve. John the Baptist, to Jesus, to then when he sent out the twelve to go to these various towns to proclaim the kingdom, here's what it says in Mark 6. They went out and preached that men should repent. There's the twelve. The last instructions that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples in Luke 24 was that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. And when you carry that into the book of Acts, we have Acts chapter 2. And so here Peter preaches to the crowd, thousands of people standing there. And he preaches, this one that you crucified by wicked hands, whom God has raised from the dead, who is now both Lord and Christ. He preaches that to them, stabs them in the heart, it says. Pricked in their heart. The word is stabbed by the Holy Spirit. And they cry out. Men and brethren, what should we do? And what was his answer to them? Repent. First word of the gospel. And be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You move one chapter over from that in Acts chapter 3. It was starting to get through. <laughs> Repentance is the key. Next chapter over, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they heal the lame man. Crowd gathers around. This guy hadn't walked in 40 years. This is an amazing thing. What's going on here? And Peter gets them together and he starts preaching. And here's what he tells them. Repent ye. Is that a surprise? Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We're carrying it right on through. Well, that's Peter. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul gets quite a congregation there on Mars Hill in Athens. And what does he tell that crowd? 
said, ah, you guys are all superstitious. You've been worshiping these false gods. And he said, for a while, God winked at that. He overlooked that. But what does he go on to say? He says, the times of this ignorance God winked out. He says, but now it's different. He commands all men everywhere to believe. Oh, no, that's not what he said, or I wouldn't be quoting it. Oh, he says he commands all men everywhere to repent. And why does he say that? It's not a popular message today in churches today. He goes on to say, I'll tell you why I'm saying that, is because he has appointed a day for all of us. All of us have this appointment that we're not going to get out of. He's appointed a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness through this man that has been raised from the dead. So it's a command. It's not an option. Commands all men everywhere to repent. And what was Paul's message from the beginning of his ministry? I'd like you to turn to this and see this. Turn to Acts 26, please. Acts 26, beginning in verse 14, it says this, And when we were all fallen to the earth, speaking of Paul and the people that were with him on the road to Damascus, he said, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which you have seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, and to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. But look what Paul goes on to say. He says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, he says, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So he's saying, I received a command from the Lord, and I wasn't disobedient to it. Look what he says. But I showed first unto them at Damascus. This means the very beginning of his ministry. And at Jerusalem, and he says, and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, what did he show them? What do we have here? What does it say? That they should what? Repent and turn to God and do works suitable to show that the repentance has been genuine. Paul says, I have done that from the start of my salvation all the way through to everybody I've ever preached to. My message has been to them, you need to first of all repent, and then you bring forth evidence that your repentance is sincere. The same message John the Baptist had. So what about that message of repentance? Like I said, it is not a popular message. So Paul's message is the same as John the Baptist's message, is the same as Jesus's message. It's the same message the 12 went out and preached. It's the same message Peter preached. And it's the same message we should preach if we're preaching the gospel. You leave repentance out, you have not preached the gospel. And I'll say, if you talk to enough people, and even people I would venture to say in here, and I don't mean that as a put-down, and I've done this quite a bit because I had gospel tracts that I liked handing out, and I would use them. My one drawback, my one criticism of this track was, it just said the word repent. It didn't explain anything about what repentance was. That's what I took on myself. To make sure I'm sharing the gospel with anybody, I clearly explain what repentance means because without it, there is no salvation. Jesus said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you'll perish. He said it twice. He didn't say unless you believe. He says unless you repent. And most people I would ask them, well, what do you think it means to repent? And almost invariably, and maybe some in here, they think to repent just means to be sorry and to ask for forgiveness. I heard that so many times. You could share the gospel to a Catholic and tell them you need to repent and believe in Jesus, and they'll be all smiles. Because that's what repent means to them, just to be sorry and go to confession, ask for forgiveness, and yeah, they believe in Jesus. Hey, but when you say no, you've got to turn from your sins, that gets a Catholic, doesn't it? That would have nailed me right in the heart. You know, words are only as good as what you fill them in with, with the meaning, right? And words change meaning, don't they, over time. Because the Bible never gives the meaning of just to be sorry and ask for forgiveness to the word repent. That's just like, I think Brother Hamilton would use this example, but it's a good example. 
you know, my old Kentucky home, when it talks about the people are gay, you know, there was a time everybody's good with that. It just means happy. But words change meaning, and it didn't take that long to where now you can't say that. You know, you want to pick another word to use, right? So the Old Testament, the word for repent was a word shuv. I believe it was used over 700 times in the Old Testament, and it's very descriptive. It means you're walking this way, and shuv to repent means you turn and you walk a totally different direction. You're not walking the way you were. And that's the way they would have understood the word repent when it was used. And in the New Testament, the word for repentance is metanoia. And meta means change, and noia means mind or thinking. So it means a change of mind or thinking. And we use words like that, metamorphosis. Meta means change, and morphos means form. So a butterfly, it's still the same being, but it changes its form from a worm to a beautiful monarch. That's what happens there. Metanoia means a change of mind that leads, not just a change of mind, but it leads to a change of actions or a change of purpose. Or as one man says, I like this, repentance is that mighty change that involves the heart, the mind, and feelings. And some people want to make repentance just they've cried and they've gotten all broken up. Hey, the essential meaning of repentance is change. A change takes place. So, for example, when John 8, when that woman was caught in adultery, she was sorry. She was sorry she got caught, and I'm sure she was sorry it happened. But the essential thing that needed to happen with her was she had to change, didn't she, to be right with God? Because Jesus told her, go and sin no more. And without that, her tears were meaningless. I've seen a lot of people cry, and that change is transitory. It doesn't last any time at all. The tears are no sooner dried on the ground, and they're back in sin. And that's not what repentance is. You know, the rich young ruler, what was Jesus asking of him when he confronted him? He was demanding repentance. He's saying, you've got to change your mind, change your heart, change your thinking about your riches. And that will result in a change of actions, and which would have been what? He said, you need to give them all the way to the poor. What did he say? He wasn't willing to repent. And it even said the Lord loved him. And it was the word for agape. What good did that do him if he was not willing to repent, to put actions and change his mind? And so you're saying, well, what about believing? Isn't that important? Are you telling me I got two things I got to do? I got to repent and I have to believe? Two things a day? No. It's really just one act. If you go back to Mark 1 and look in verse 15, look what Jesus said. We'll get to this eventually. And when he went preaching, he says, The time is fulfilled, Mark 1, 15, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Well, listen, he's not telling you to do two different things. It's one act. That takes place, right? Let me explain it this way. So the other day, I left Shelbyville and I drove to Fort Knox. That was just one act I did, right? But in leaving Shelbyville, I went to Fort Knox. Uh, let me explain it another way. So it's the same hand that's holding on to sin. You have to let go of that sin to be able to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one act. You can't, and some people think they can. You can't hold on to your sin and hold on to him at the same time. You've got to let go of your sin and grasp hold of him. That's what the word repent and believe means. That's what's taking place in there. That is what conversion is. Listen, so many Christians in America today, because I believe of an overemphasis on God's love and grace, they think that they can still hold on to that sin and everything's okay. They think they can still do their drugs. They think they can still drink. They think they can fornicate. They can lie. They can steal. They can look at pornography. They can harbor unforgiveness and still make it in. And they're basing it all on, well, I got saved. I said this prayer whenever. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Let no man deceive you. No fornicator, no drunkard, no homosexual is going to make it in the kingdom of God. That's clear. It doesn't work that way. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says this, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, 
but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Just not those that confess their sins are going to have mercy. You have got to forsake them. And I looked up the word forsaken. I've got me a brand new Oxford English dictionary. Pretty good dictionary. And for forsaken, it gives this definition to abandon, to leave, or to give up is what it means to forsake something. And so you go to an abandoned mine. How many people visit that mine? Nobody. That's why it's abandoned. And that's the way our sins are supposed to be. We're not supposed to still be living and fellowshipping with them. They're supposed to be strangers to us when you repent. Now, this shouldn't be that quiet. I'm not saying anything that is new. But I'll tell you, when, you, when I've preached this way at prison, I literally have had guys say to me, I've never heard this preached before. What you're saying is strange to me. I've never heard the gospel presented this way. And I'm like, well, that's because you've just never heard the gospel. I'm not breathing out something new. I didn't invent the wheel with this. So listen, Charles Spurgeon, he didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he was a godly man. I've not read a ton of his sermons. I've read some. I like Mr. Spurgeon. I think he had a lot of wisdom. And I guarantee you he had an anointing that I wished I had when he was preaching. But listen, he was not what I would call a hard preacher. Most of his sermons, I would never say that he was a hard preacher. He talked a lot about the love of God, the mercy of God, and the joy of the cross. Loved to preach on the cross. That's one thing I like about him. There is a sermon that he preached one time, and it's called Turn or Burn. And listen to what Mr. Spurgeon said. He said, perhaps some of the Puritan fathers, and this is a criticism of the Puritans, all that old hellfire brimstone. It's a criticism I've heard many times today, and let me just say it, in many places. That, oh yeah, preaching about hell and the fear of God, that's a thing of the past. It's not. Well, it is, but it shouldn't be. And he went on, let me get back. He said, some of the Puritan fathers may have gone too far and have given too great a prominence to the terrors of the Lord in their ministry. But, he says, the age in which we live, now this is back in the 1800s. <laughs> it's not even a comparison to today. But, he says, but the age in which we live has sought to forget those terrors altogether. And he says, if we dare to tell men that God will punish them for their sins, it is charged upon us that we want to bully them into religion. And if we faithfully and honestly tell our hearers that sin must bring after it certain destruction, it is said that we are attempting to frighten them into goodness. And Spurgeon says this, he says, Now we care not what men mockingly impute to us. We feel it is our duty when men sin to tell them that they shall be punished. And so long as the world will not give up its sin, we feel we must not cease our warnings. But the cry of the age is that God is merciful, that God is love. He's saying that's what everybody, that's all they want to hear to now. And he goes on, he says, who said he wasn't? Who said he was not? He says, but remember, it is equally true that God is just, severely and inflexibly just. And he went on to say this. He said, there are four things that must be present for repentance to be genuine. And listen to these four things. He says, first of all, that the turning or the repentance must be actual and not fictitious. In other words, it can't just stop with promises and vows. Here's what he says. He says, do you say you are sorry and repent and yet go on from day to day just as you always went? Will you now bow your heads and say, Lord, I repent, and in a little while commit the same deeds again? Spurgeon said, if you do, your repentance is worse than nothing and shall but make your destruction yet more sure. Repentance, to be true, must be a repentance which really affects our outward conduct. And I'll tell you why I'm quoting Spurgeon, because if I said that, y'all be shutting me down. Now, this is Mr. Spurgeon. I'm just telling you what he said, and I think it's true. He said the second thing, for repentance to be sure, it must be entire, E-N-T-I-R-E. -E. And he said this, how many will say, sir, I will renounce this sin and the other, but there are certain darling lusts which I must keep and hold. And he says, oh, sirs, in God's name, let me tell you, it is not the giving up of one sin, nor 50 sins, which is true repentance. It is the solemn renunciation of 
every sin. If you indulge in but one lust and thus give up every other, that one lust, like one leak in a ship, will sink thy soul. And isn't that what happened? With King Saul, he had to spare Agag. He was supposed to destroy him. And he's like, oh, you think this is going to ruin me that I spared this king? What was the command he was told? To destroy all, all the sinners of the Amalekites. Isn't that what he was told? And that's what Spurgeon said, and repentance must be entire. The third thing he says is for repentance to be genuine, it must be hearty. True repentance is a turning of the heart as well as of the life. It is the giving up of the whole soul to God to be his forever and ever. It is a renunciation of the sins of the heart as well as the crimes of the life. And the last thing he said is for repentance to be genuine, it has to be perpetual or lasting. He says, it is not my turning to God during today that will be a proof that I am a true convert. It is forsaking of my sin throughout the entire of my life until I sleep in the grave. It is not a superficial change, a cutting off of the top of the weed, but dealing with the cause once and for all. Dealing with the root. Well, that's a lot said right there. And that should cause us pause to reflect on whether our repentance is genuine. Might even cause, have cause to reflect, is my salvation even genuine? So the turning must be actual, not just promises or vows. Repentance, it has to be entire. You have to turn from every known sin. Repentance has to be hearty, your whole life given to God. And it has to be perpetual, a lasting repentance, a cutting off. So people are having trouble with lust this day and they're having trouble with pornography. The answer is in Matthew chapter 5. It's not in toying around with it. It's not in trying to cut back. You know, I'm, I'm going to look at 13 websites today and instead of the 45 I looked at yesterday. No. You know what the answer is? The answer is in cutting it off. Like he said, that darling sin, you can't hold on to that. It's got to be a cutting off and a once and for all cutting off. Or like he said, it will sink your ship. Believe me. Young men, you've got to determine in your heart you are done with pornography. Or you will perish. That's not my opinion. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Read Matthew chapter 5. He said you'd be better off to pull your eyeball out than to continue to lust. You'll perish in hell. Cut your hand off. Cut your foot off. Those things you think you can't do without. I'm talking about your darling sin. That thing you don't think you can do without. You better cut it off. It'll send you to hell. That's what Jesus said. It's that serious. And that's the way to deal with it. And that's what John preached. That's what John preached, the baptism of repentance. And, you know, to further emphasize and strengthen his message, look what we have here in verse 6. Look how he was dressed and how he ate. And John was clothed, it says, with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locust and wild honey. So he was not clothed in a camel skin, but in a cloth garment that was woven out of camel's hair with a leather belt. Well, listen, that outfit, even back then, it's not like you saw people walking around looking like that. It would have been just as unusual back then as it would be in our day to day. You know, camel hair and a leather belt were not the normal wilderness or even the nomads that were wandering around. They, they didn't dress like that. So, you know, the question is, well, why did John dress that way? You know why he dressed that way? He's fulfilling prophecy, letting them know that he's fulfilling prophecy. No small thing. Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And Jesus said this about John in Matthew 11. He says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. And so Jesus is saying clearly that John the Baptist was the predicted Elijah that would come. And how did Elijah dress? Second Kings 1 says this, when the king wants to know who's this guy that called down fire from heaven on my companies of 50 that I keep sending, what manner of man was he, he asked him, which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, he was a hairy man. And that didn't mean he had hair all over him and all over his back and everything. No, that's not what he said. He had camel's hair. He looked like a hairy man. He was a hairy man and 
says, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And the king says, ah, I know who that guy is. Elijah the Tishbite. And so here's the thing the Jews knew about Malachi 4 5. It's one of the last words in the Old Testament. And they knew that Elijah was going to come before the Lord and that John the Baptist was the promised ministry of Elijah. And so, what was Elijah's ministry? There is some significance there. His ministry was to call God's people back to true worship in repentance. And so, you all know the story when he confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He gathered all the children of Israel here. It says they were all gathered there to watch. And the scripture says this, when Elijah came unto all the people and said, here's what he told them. He's calling them back. He says, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And you know what it says after that? He's confronting them. It says the people answered not a word. They weren't sure. They weren't sure at that point who they wanted to follow. Because at this point, they're getting ready to set up these sacrifices, the sacrifice to Baal, the sacrifice to the Lord, and they're not answering him. They're not sure who's got the power, are they? It may be Baal. It might be, Lord, we don't know. They answered him not a word, not sure. So when those prophets of Baal, and they set up their altar and nothing happened, Elijah says, all right, he mocks him a little bit. He says, bring me four barrels of water during the middle of a drought. And he has him keep pouring that over the sacrifice. Three times, four barrels of water over that until it says the trench around the sacrifice was filled up with water. And he prayed this. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. And then listen to what he tells him. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back again. That's what his ministry was, to turn the people's hearts back to the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist is doing out in the wilderness. And after he prayed that prayer, it says the fire fell. Boom! Consumed that sacrifice, and it said it licked up the water in the trenches right in the sight of all of those people. That would have been a sight to see. And then the people, oh, they can decide now. <laughs> They're not having that much trouble. It says they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What would you do? You know, you might be next <laughs> to have that fire fall down on you. So that was his ministry, Elijah, to turn the people's heart back to God. He's the forerunner of who? It's, this is all type set up. Who was Elijah, the forerunner of? Elisha, who was a type of Christ. Do you know, twice as many miracles literally were done by Elisha than Elijah. And also, this is the significance of John the Baptist dressing like Elijah. Do you know where they exchanged their ministries, Elijah and Elisha? At the Jordan River. That's what happened, just like John and the Lord Jesus Christ did. So all of this is speaking to them probably more so than it would to us, but it was a big deal. And so like we said, John comes preaching that a king is coming, no ordinary king. In verse 7 it says, and he preached saying, there comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. <laughs> mightier. And so when Mark's saying that, he doesn't mean mightier a king that's mightier in economic, political, and, and armies. That's not what he's talking about. His mightier is one that is a deliverer, an exorcist, someone that can cast out demons. He's talking about mightier in the power over the enemy with his healings, with his miracles. He can calm nature, control over nature. The Lord of the universe is his point, one mightier than me. So he's saying, I is so great, he goes on to say that I am not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandal. <laughs> I mean, that's saying something there. Because that was the lowest occupation you had. You know, if you had a Jewish slave and you were their master, you couldn't even get the Jewish slave. It was not required to unloose your shoes. That was left for the Gentile slaves. That was the lowest of low. And John's saying, he is so far beyond me in his glory and his power and his majesty. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest thing that could be done in our society. That is something. The glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's announcing this that the king is coming and nobody wants to miss out. 
Everybody's coming down to the River Jordan to get baptized. And it says in Luke that the people were in a state of expectation. Because, man, they're seeing these prophecies being fulfilled. And here is this long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king, who's going to deliver us from the oppression of the enemies. And they're saying, we all want to be part of this. And John's preparing them for it. And how does he do that? How does he get the path straight, the valleys filled, the mountains and the hills brought low, and the crooked made straight, and the rough ways made smooth? We've already talked about it. It is through one word. What does he do with these people? One word is repentance. That is how he gets them ready for this king coming up. And they are lined up to be baptized. Verse 5, there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And that's something unique for the Jews. Because the Jews never got baptized. The only people that were baptized, they would have washings. The only people that got baptized were Gentile proselytes. They would get baptized because they were considered totally unclean. The Jews didn't consider themselves that way. They would have to confess as they were being baptized, these Gentiles, I'm an unclean sinner. And so God is humbling these Jews. He's saying, hey, just because you're Abraham's seed doesn't make you anything. Isn't that what he told the Pharisees? Don't claim that you're Abraham's seed. God can raise up seed from Abraham from rocks. He called them a brood of vipers is what he told them. He said, nah, but they're having to humble themselves and say, we are wicked sinners. Confessing their sins, it says, as they were baptized. That was a big thing for a Jew. Don't trust in your Jewish heritage. You better have a changed life. And that's the case in here. Just because you grew up in this church, have gone to this church, you better not trust the fact that you're still coming every week. That is not it. It's the message is the same for us as it was back then. You better have bringing forth fruits that are worthy of a life of repentance. That's the message. That's what the message is. It's as simple as that. Because here's the thing that we need to understand that those people understood is that when this Messiah came, he was going to do a separating work. And that was the word John gave. He's going to separate what? The chaff from the wheat. It says his winnowing shovel is in his hand. And he's going to come and look amongst the people one day, isn't he? And he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. And the only way not to be the chaff is what? Repentance. It is. It's as simple as that. And so these people, they're coming out, they're flocking, they're repenting. They're saying, hey, we don't want to be left out. We know this king is coming. We've been waiting a long time for this Messiah. And we see all the signs here are being fulfilled. We don't want to be outside that kingdom. And do we want to be outside that kingdom? And that's what will happen if we let ourselves get back and walking in a way. And so that's my question. What about us? We read about them. Well, what about us? So the message is the king is coming. Are you ready? And that's what I would say. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet the king if he came today? And everyone knows whether they are or they aren't, whether they would be looking forward to that or not. Because a lot of times we tend to put the message of repentance for only the unconverted. And it's not. Because in the book of Revelation, in the letter to the seven churches, the word repent is used seven times. Christian churches, spirit-filled churches, seven times they are told to repent. That should speak to us. Now maybe your life today, maybe you feel like it's, you're in the wilderness, you're in that barren wilderness, and I'd say the good news is, we saw that earlier, that is where God says, I will meet you, right, in the barren wasteland. And he says, I'll give you just like I did Israel just like I did the people of Jerusalem and Judea, all the ones that came out to meet John, I'll give you a new beginning. All you need to do is repent, turn from your sins, confess your sins. I'll give you a new beginning. You'll be ready for the king to come. And so I would say we need to all just examine our hearts before the Lord and ask him to show us what is our cause of our lack of joy, our lack of expectation, our lack of faith, or our lack of love to him. Because maybe our repentance has not been actual. Maybe it's just been vows and we've never really changed, right? Maybe it hasn't been entire. Maybe we haven't given up all of our known sins. Maybe we're holding on to one or two and not giving him everything. And maybe we haven't turned our whole life away from sin like we know we should. 
Or maybe we've never turned our back on sins for good. We've gotten back into things that we know aren't right that we didn't do years back. When we had the joy of the Lord, when we had his presence with us, that's something to think about, right? And I believe through this message that God is calling us as a people back to him in repentance because I really also believe this. I believe he wants to manifest the life and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. And we can experience the king coming that way in our midst now. It's nothing that we have to wait for. We don't have to wait for his literal return. But we need to be prepared for him to come. And I believe that involves, you know, they like to talk about radical repentance. There is no such thing. Radical repentance is just a repentance that is in the Bible. You know, there's not a hard word as long as it's what's in the Bible. It's just God's word. It's how he expects us to live. Luke 14 has never changed. If any man come after me, let him deny mother, father, sister, brother, wife, husband, yea, and his own life also, he says, or he cannot. It's impossible. Cannot be my disciple. That's as basic as it gets. We've got to forsake all and follow him. But look, if we'll do that, here's the message we can experience. I read this earlier. I'll read it again. Acts 3.19. Peter says, repent ye therefore. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. Isn't that what we want? That's what I want. And I think that's the key to it. I honestly do. You seek the Lord and repent. And get your life right, and he will come. The times of refreshing will come. If it doesn't come to everybody else, it'll come to you. I'm telling you it will. I can guarantee you that from God's word. And then when that happens, we can sing the last verse of that song. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng. And the fury of God's trumpet spells the end of sin and wrong. Regal rolls are now unfolded. Heaven's grandstands all in place. Heaven's choir is now assembled and starts to sing amazing grace. Amen. That can happen. And the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God. He is coming for me. That's what we should be able to say. So let's get our hearts right and we can experience his coming in our midst. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you once again for the words you've given us here and this message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare his coming in our lives. And I ask, Father, that you'll deal with all of us here, Lord, that we will give entire repentance and whole repentance and not leave any stone unturned, any sin in our lives, Lord. I ask that you'll give us the grace and mercy to root that out of our lives so that we can once again experience the times of refreshing from the time of the Lord because we have hearts and consciences that know we've given you all which is what you demand. It's what you're worthy of us to give, our all, our life, because you gave all for us. And I thank you that you'll speak that to all of our hearts tonight. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.